Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. Well, amen. Take your Bibles, please. Judges chapter 6. We are on a series Uh, about standing strong. I trust you are doing that in your own personal walk with the Lord and that you have enjoyed His grace day by day. That's how it comes. We are to trust the Lord and thank the Lord for each day. This is the day that God has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it and thank Him for His his help each day. Thank you, ladies. Great reminder. Today's uh, subject really is victory at home. Courage begins at home, Judges chapter 6. Judges could rightly be called the book of failure. It uh, comprises a 400-year kind of period of time where the people lived by a mantra. And that mantra was, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we're going to find the bright spot, one of the bright spots in that period of time, and it was God's encounter and God's commissioning of a man by the name of Gideon. We'll just get started. In fact, most of this morning's message, I must apologize to begin with, is in the introduction. But I want us to set the stage. And I want to remind you that when you read the Bible, uh, it is not to disconnect history from where we're living today. But to see in every Bible study that you make, every portion that you read, not only the centrality of Christ, but application should be made to your life and mine where we live today. This is a book that transcends time, and it is written for our learning. And I'm thankful for the hero hero by the name of Gideon. He goes by another name too, was given to him after he tore down his daddy's idols in the backyard, Jerubbaal that one who comes against or contends against Baal. Let's begin reading in chapter 6, shall we? And most of you are familiar a little bit with the life of Gideon, but let's reset the text and the context a little bit as we begin. The children of Israel, verse 1 of chapter 6, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And remember, this is something of God's doing. God allowed them to be controlled by the enemy. They prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them dens in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And they hid there. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, many of the nomadic tribes around them to the east, They would descend upon Israel, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth, right at harvest time. Till thou come into Gaza, no sustenance was left for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. And they came up with their cattle, their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. Verse 6 says, and Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Gideon lived in the fertile lowlands of Esdralon, near Ophrah in central Israel, an area that I might say is known for its beauty. Here's a 
a map behind me. Perhaps you could uh, give it some context, a pretty simple looking map. Let me give you a more complex. You probably can't even see all the small lettering, but kind of in north central part of, of uh, Israel is where Gideon's story is told. It's an area known for its fertility, agriculturally speaking, greatest cropland perhaps even to this day is right here in this wonderful part, the Jezreel Valley. It's a, an area historically that was only recently delivered by the, from the hands of the Canaanites by the leadership of Judge Deborah, a woman, and Barak. Uh, now, Gideon's family, we will know, note from the story, is not very notable in Israel. He was from the tribe of Manasseh. In fact, he would tell the angel of the Lord, verse 15, Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. He had a humble attitude and perhaps he had a humble, really, beginning in life. There is some thought that because of his love for the Lord, he was also a minority at that time. Well, what is surprising to us is that only a few years after the deliverance of the people of God from Egypt, right? Through the Red Sea, through 40 years of wilderness, and the destruction of 31 tribal nations that were resident in Canaan through the leadership of Jericho, after these wonderful victories, crossing again, the, not just the Red Sea, but the Jordan River and establishing the people in the land of promise, the great victories, we see this 400-year period of failure where every man just did what they wanted to do. And then we come to really a verse that I want to use as our, our verse of principle or focus. It's found in chapter 6, verse 25. Of course, you know the great story of Gideon. We'll get more into the details next week of his great victory over the Midianites with 300 mighty men, clay pots, and torches. But there is this encounter with the angel. As we know that Gideon, the farmer, is hiding from the encroaching Midianites, and he's trying to uh, threshes his grain in a hiding spot instead of on the top of a tall mountain. He's in a wine press and he's hiding. And the angel of the Lord comes. And what a surprising note it is in the context or this narrative, verse 25, that right behind Gideon's house or his daddy's house, I should correct, there are idols to a false god. Came to pass, verse 25, that after the Lord had recommissioned or commissioned Gideon, that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years of age, and throw, it, throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. <laughs> Does that surprise you that these people that serve the only true God, the only living God, the only God there is, the only true God, have now tried to assist God or compromise their loyalty to God by building shrines to Baal, symbolized by a bull. It's no wonder he asked them, or he asked Gideon, the Lord did, take the bullocks that your dad has, seven years of age, and go sacrifice them. First of all, tear down the idols in your backyard, build an altar, verse 26, to the Lord, upon the top of this rock in the ordered place and sacrifice the bullocks and cut down the grove, the shrine to Asherah that is right behind your daddy's house in your backyard. The Israelites had idols 
all over the land in their own backyard. I got to thinking as I circled that verse, or at least I noted that verse, how insane is this? How silly to build idols to another God when the God that you served, the God that called you out of Egypt by a mighty hand did all these wonderful works in your history. And now you're seeking to worship other gods. But I had to ask myself a question. Do I do that? Do you do that? What idols are in your backyard? And God will say to Gideon, before you ride a white horse into battle against the Midianites, you better run over to your daddy's backyard and clean up some closets. Courage always begins at home, the boiler room of your own heart, the closets that are hiding in your own soul. Before you do exploits for God, the angel of the Lord will say, you deal with your own, the mess in your own backyard. My question this morning is this, do you have some house cleaning to do? So far, our series on biblical courage has had us looking at men and women who stared down giants, kings, armies, but today we establish a more convicting truth about courage. The hardest enemy you'll ever face lives at home. And I'm not talking about your spouse or your kids. It's your own heart. The heart said, one is the very factory of all idols. Israel was a nation dedicated to the honor of God. And there's an altar to Baal in Gideon's backyard. How can you fight the Midianites, the Lord asks us, when there are such problems with your own worship system. I want to spend a fair amount of time this morning on the runway, so to speak, connecting Gideon's culture to our own. Because we tend to disconnect, I believe, the story of the Bible to our own story, to our own world. I do believe we're living in Gideon's world today. And I want to establish a case about that. Build a case that we too are lovers of idols, nationally, personally. And when we read the Bible, we have to ask, the, ask ourselves the question, not only did what, the, what does the narrative mean back then to those, but uh, good Bible interpreters ask the question as we're studying the text, so what does this, this story tucked away 1,169 uh, 1, years before Christ, what does this story have to do with us today? I won't ask you to raise the hand if you have an idol. You say, well, certainly not. I've, I, I, you know, I just mowed yesterday. <laughs> as far as I know, we don't have a shrine out there. We don't have a, an altar to a false deity. After all, we're in Christian America. We don't do that. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, again, this is just the Jezreel Valley where Gideon farm back when he was a, a young man and where God called him, again, a rich terrain. And so it was no wonder that at harvest time, it became really an object of desire for those nations around to come in and swoop up the harvest. But I, I'm just wondering if, if you're aware that although our gods may not be the same by name, we do serve gods. And God says, in those days, it was Ashtaroth, Phoenicia, Baal, the Canaanite god of storm and fertility and thunder, rain, reproduction, 
Baal Peor, the Moabites, Chemosh, and so you see Dagon, the Philistines. These were the godlets that surrounded them. Thousands of others. And they were the ones that were so attractive to the people who served the one true God. But I want you to know that paganism is becoming more and more favorable in our country. Here's what I want to remind you about. By paganism, I simply mean this. Any religious practice that is non-Christian, some would say pre-Christian, believing that the gods of this world and the worship of nature that's becoming so popular predated Christ and His church. We know nothing predates God. In 2018, I'm told that 1.5 million Americans identified as pagan in our quote-unquote Christian nation. And this number is way up from where it was in 2008. Roughly 340,000 at that time identified as pagan. Any pagans on your block? Don't raise your hand, please. It suggests that Americans aren't just leaving mainline churches to identify as atheists, but many are adopting a brand new religion. They're dusting off old demonic traits and goblets and folklore and magic and witchcraft from the past. Pantheism is becoming all the rage. Pantheism meaning God is in all and all is God. Animism is gaining favor too. Everything has a spirit according to animism, trees and rocks. Polytheism, more gods the merrier. These are the mantras, the runaway train really of those typically who are a bit younger in their 20s and 30s. And I would say this, you, you say, I don't believe that. Let me just remind you uh, of movies, Disney shows and TV series that are spun out of this ideology. And not to uh, be a fear monger this morning, but parents, please understand me that your TV is a preacher. Your TV is a teacher. And I don't know if you've picked up on this. And not that it's new, it's been around for years and years, but there is a growing a preoccupation with a new age philosophy that embraces witchcraft and all the dark side, if you would say it that way, of demonism. Here are just some of the titles, and these are movies that I know nothing about. I want to <laughs> clear the record, but they are those that are listed as popular today. The Craft, The Last Keepers, Practical Magic, Charmed, The Wicker Man, The Pagan Queen, Prisoners, The Happening, Fern Gully, Spiderwick Chronicles. These are for the kids. Pocahontas, Watership Down, Juana, others have this laced-in ideology of, uh, of, of a false or an other God that we can serve. It's not just the film industry that is falling in love with the dark side we are surrounded by a world that is calling evil good and good evil. It is as surprising to me uh, as this idol perched in the backyard of Gideon's family for us to all of a sudden in Christian America, all of a sudden, it's been growing, uh, embracing our own set of idols, our own set of realities. Have you caught yourself saying, I just can't believe that is happening in America. Have you caught yourself saying that recently? Just as I was stunned by this verse, shocked by it that right behind Gideon's house is a grove to ungodly worship, false gods. I've caught myself recently saying, I cannot believe 
in our America, these things are happening. This morning, by way of introduction, I just want to build a case for this. Who's changed the truth of God into a lie? We have. And we've worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Here's a, a little statement I think is very good. Moral blindness is the direct result of willfully rejecting or neglecting biblical truth and replacing it with alternative realities. What are those? They're lies and gods of our own making. Isaiah 59, 14 says, Judgment is turned away backward, and justice, justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street. And equity cannot, discernment cannot enter. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the, the road to reprobate mind, a reprobate mind, begins with unthankfulness, Right? Simply unthankfulness for what God is and who God is and the truth that we now enjoy and have enjoyed traditionally for years. It is simply unthankfulness. It leads to a place ultimately where our conscience is so seared and so broken as to its intended purpose that it cannot receive truth anymore. It rejects all truth and can no longer be reached by the long arm of grace and mercy. We are come to a place where we have willfully placed ourselves into what the Bible calls in Romans chapter 1, a reprobate, irreparable conscience that is seared to the promptings of God. I hope you, dear friend, are not in that place because of idol worship, because of a grove in your backyard. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no man, Cometh unto me, cometh to the truth, except by me. And yet we are trying to find alternative truths. There are no alternatives to God's truth, none. And what I want you to see about Gideon is that his world is not different from ours. His calling to stand in an evil day is exactly the same as what is needed today. First, we see that in the context that follows the verses we read, and just for sake of time, let me just explain the story. God sends a prophet. After they were greatly impoverished, verse 6, came to pass, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. This may not be a cry of repentance, truly, as we know the history of this time in Israel, but they were tired of the oppression. But at the, at the very least, they were humbled by being on the losing side. And so they cried to the Lord, and in His mercy, what does He do? Verse 8, He sends a prophet. Later, He sends His own dear son. It's a Christophany. Jesus comes in the form of an angel and ministers to Gideon. And he commissions Gideon to go. And we know that Gideon had a tremendous victory later in the story with clay pots, torches, and the mighty 300. But what I want us to be convinced of this morning is that we need to place ourselves in the context. If you'll allow me this morning to spend some time reminding you of the similarities that we're facing with Gideon in his day. I know that Israel is not America, and America is not Israel. I know that. We're not, America is not God's chosen people. But we chose in our early days to found this country on Judeo-Christian principles. And those that came, first of all, came wanting to worship the one true God. The Puritans and pilgrims came looking for freedom to express their worship to a God without oppression to the one true living God. And that has been really the context of our background. But my, how's it changing today? We are 
certainly that generation known in Gideon's day as the generation that simply wants to do things according to their own will. My little grandson, as I mentioned earlier, visited this week and, and uh, he, uh, he's been taking swimming lessons back home where they live in Virginia and uh, he doesn't like to put his head under the water at all. Of course, he's still pretty young. And so he came up sputtering and spitting, and he got up to the side of the pool crying and rubbing his eyes, and he went to his mother. On the way home, he told his mother, I just want to do what I want to do, and I don't want to do what I don't want to do. <laughs> and I said, bingo, that's it. That's America. That's the foundational problem with sinners. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want to do. We are driven by selfish passions. And how merciful of God to send a prophet and his own dear son. I know, again, America isn't Israel, but who would have thought, who would have thought that just 160 years ago we would swallow the notion that the universe was started by a random explosion in space? What thinking person with a conscience really believes that, that a, a random explosion somewhere out there in the netherworld who knows where the particles came for that first explosion to develop and happen. But somehow all this complexity grew out of that. And that's now the standardized truth concerning our origins. It's a pseudo-scientific notion that God was absent in the narrative of how we got here. If somehow we can displace God from our creation. If you keep God out of our history, then it's no longer His story. But we bought that crazy Darwinian notion of evolution. Christians even adapted a version of that by claiming it as theistic evolution. Father Time had to help Father God get Mother Earth right. Let me ask you, where in your Bible do you read in Genesis that God, after he created the worlds, said this? Well, I guess that was a good try, not bad for a beginner. No, the created world was good, very good, perfect as God intended it to be. God didn't need help by time improving what he had done in six days of creation. Well, we know the story. Satan fell, came into the garden with a very, uh, very pointed agenda. It's a remove or doubt God agenda. He's been working that tired agenda ever since. It was true in Gideon's day. It's true in our day. Evolution is an idol in our own backyard. And it's been there since the mid-1800s. And I scratched my head and saying, how could... How can thinking Christians embrace that? Well, you remove God and you exalt folly. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Romans 1.22. And after about 100 years of that, we decided that human life outside the womb was more valuable than human life inside the womb. So we said, Mom, just think about this. We will put you in jail if you take the life of your baby outside the womb, but if you abort that life before it's born, that's okay. You're not a killer. No, instead, you are a pro-choice, progressive thinker, and the master of your own body. That's an idol growing in our backyard. And did you know, 
60 million lives have been lost to abortion in America. And we look at the godlets and the gods of the past in Gideon's day, the Canaanitish gods and those around them from uh, these different neighboring countries and say, how stupid, how silly for them to bow down to handcrafted idols and to sacrifice their children, the burning arms or the fiery glowing hot arms of Molech. What, what stupidity is that? How crude, how paganistic, and yet... Child sacrifice is the number one killer in America. Child sacrifice. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Gideon. There are idols in our backyard. In 48 years, more children have died from child sacrifice in hospitals and clinics than all American soldiers that died in the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World Wars I and II, Korean, Vietnam, Gulf, and Iraq wars combined. We've lost 60 million children in our Christian quote-unquote nation. COVID claimed 600,000 lives in over a year in America. Yet in the same amount of time in our country, abortion has destroyed even more lives than that. And that's a pandemic of sin that's been raging since January 22, 1973, when we legitimized this sin. The problem is we can't hear the silent screams of the unborn. It's culturally acceptable to kill children. If only they made a vaccine for rebellion, foolishness, apathy. The church needs a booster shot. She needs a Gideon, doesn't she? The remedy is never a majority. Let me tell you this. It's always a bold obedience that starts at home. Is America today like Gideon's Israel? No idols on our shelves, no shrines in our backyards, but allow me to continue. Who would have thought that in moral majorities America, we would have presidents, and let me name them just a few recent presidents, that have stood to celebrate what God calls an abomination. Not just Clinton, but Obama, Trump, Biden, all have favored promoting pride as pride, what is clearly a biblical perversion. Tens of thousands of those celebrating, celebrating the perversion of homosexuality today is their last Sunday of the month to parade all across the world. Great cities all across the world are now expressing their appreciation and their affinity with this crowd. Gay pride. In the streets of the cities around the world, they are waving rainbow banners and crying out for equal rights, doing their best to sanctify same-sex relationships, marriages. And who are we to disparage, they say, true love? Love is love. Who would have thought that the rainbow, a biblical sign of hope and promise after a worldwide judgment for sin, would have been hijacked by a group of folks that are blatantly immoral? Now there's a whole month of the year dedicated to exalting the sin of homosexuality. All I need to do is remind you of the, the end game. We see it. It's already been written in history. We've already read that chapter in history. Sodom and Gomorrah at the, at the end of homosexuality run amok. Come to a place where in the streets, not only are there parades, but there are, there's, there's this violent, vile, um, deviant behavior that really is looking for open expression of all the vilest and immoral forms of life. 
came to a point where Lot's own decision to just simply give up his daughters to this crowd who were banging on his door. You think it's just about equal rights? Are there any idols in our backyard? If God does not punish America, someone has said, he is going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. How long before God destroys this great nation? I want you to put yourself, I'm talking about courage to stand, put yourself in the shoes of Gideon, a nation given to the desires of the flesh. Who would have thought that just a while ago that applications, and I saw this just two weeks ago, for just about anything you wish to apply for, now include a new category of gender identity. Have you noticed that? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but it's happened to me. Now, instead of male and female as an identity, biological identity, there is the option, male, female, and other. Have you scratched your head and said, what is another? I'll tell you who it is. It's the same crowd that's looking for new religions, new origins, new definitions of family, and new destinies. Do you know the word secular simply means without God? Give me anything other. They say, other than God. We don't want God's authority. And they who wish for other paths want something other than God wants us to be. We will not have this man to rule over us. Nothing in our lives should be secular without God. Yet slowly, God, the Bible, Christians are being canceled and silenced. We are hiding in caves while the Midianites approach. The lack of heroes in America today, spiritually speaking, the lack of those with spiritual backbone is directly connected to our sinfulness. Who would have thought that pastors, pastors like uh, James Coates and others in Canada wishing to meet for worship just across the border, this has happened in California as well, would be put in jail for violating pandemic safety guidelines. At the same time, liquor stores in the same area are considered essential business. Israel's God in Gideon's day was no longer deemed essential. Is God in your life deemed essential? Think about this past week, how essential have devotions been? How essential has church been? You see, if you're holding loosely to your God, it won't be long before the devil snatches him away. How close are you tied to prayer habits? How much do you read the word? How much do you care about what's happening in America? Have you looked out your back door window? Or have you looked into your own backyard? Have you noticed that it's not just the world that's going to hell in the handbasket? It may be. That if you look closely in your own heart, the closets, the occupy, the really the boiler room of your heart, there's a desire there that's simply making you yawn about the degradation of not just America and America's churches, but our own hearts prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. 
You are no longer essential, God. You're just another one on the shelf. The very premier of Ontario said this, liquor helps our people cope, and we are here to support them. Churches need to close because of the crowds, but we need to keep the liquor stores open. Never mind that there were 10 times more hospitalizations from alcohol-related conditions due to COVID during the first five months of the pandemic in Canada. 10 times more than hospitalizations due to COVID. 105,000 alcohol-related hospitalizations compared to 10,000 COVID-19 hospitalizations in Canada in the first five months of the pandemic in 2020. Truth has fallen in the streets while idols are being built in our backyard. There's a pandemic fear that has gripped our necks so tightly that it's choked off the blood supply to our brains and our spiritual backbones. There is a greater fear than COVID. And it is spiritual coldness. Who would have thought, and I'm about done with this comparison, who would have thought that in our own backyard, our own country, men who pretend to be women would be allowed into ladies' restrooms, locker rooms, sports teams. Yet this year, in the Summer Olympics, a man is seeking to compete as a woman. I don't know if that will happen, but there is one seeking to do so. And most people shrug their shoulders and say, what can you do? What can you do? I guess he is a woman because his gender has been chosen. You may now define your own reality. This was Gideon's world. Every person defined reality as they thought it was good for them. Who would think that churches, churches now, um, are becoming vacant of college students. Joe Taylor had a great Sunday school this morning for us to remind us of the necessity to reach the next generation. Who would think that while churches are becoming vacant of college students and millennials, movements like, like paganism, <clears throat> with its pantheon of Goblins, wizards, spirits that come from trees, rocks, streams, sky, planet, hell, and even from within ourselves. Who would have thought that that philosophy, that false belief, would surpass and surplant genuine truth? Gideon was living our reality. Idols are in our backyard, little replacements for God. One more quote from a mother of a teenager who responded to Newsweek about a decline of young people in the church. This is, not, <laughs> this is not someone who is in favor of the church. She has kids that aren't believers. But there is a revival of ancient paganism, and she's aware of it because her kids are into it. And here's what she said, honestly, I'm not sure why so many people have negative responses to the revival of earth-based traditions. I think the more awareness that we put out there about alternatives for worship, the better. It doesn't matter to me if every detail is perfectly true. It doesn't matter to me if, if it's true or not, truly. <laughs> Point is, if it helps at least one person open their mind and heart to new possibilities, that's revolutionary. More people should step up for what they believe in. She says, I find it refreshing. We don't even know how it was for our ancestors to pray during pre-Christian times. Well, we do if we read the Bible. 
There's never a pre-Christian time. But it wasn't totally stamped out because we hold the key, says this mom, in our own bones. That's where the truth is, in your bones. Did you know that? It's a journey within. We're the ones that need to remember how we used to do this in antiquity. We, who, who we really are. These are exciting times. She says, I'm a mother of two teens, and I'm elated when they sport a pentagram, snakes, questioning the current system with bright eyes to the future. Chill out is what I say. Bring on some real dialogue here with the world, the cosmos. Let's normalize magical medicines and the way of our lost traditions. Our ancestors are rooting us on enough separation of peoples, and let's go back to one love, the love of Mother Earth. Traditional, this is really the only statement I agree with her. Traditional church has been weighed in the balance and found wanting. So the question is, dear friend, as we look here for a few moments at what happened for God's remedy to the situation, is this. How many idols, not nationally, do you see? I've enumerated some of those, but how many are in your backyard. Sin and fear have a direct connection. Look at verses 1 and 2. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. It's interesting to me that Baal was known as the god of fertility and rain, the area in which Gideon lived. I mentioned earlier the Jezreel plains, known for great fertility of crops. The land there to this day is known as exceptional for agriculture. But because of the Canaanite religion and their um, worship of the God of choice in that area, Baal, uh, th- there, was this, there was this ebb and flow of agricultural productivity. And when the neighbors across the border had great crops and maybe Israel didn't have as great of crops, they were tempted to think that maybe there's something to that. These local deities included Baal and his consort Asherah, who was only one of many prostitute goddesses. Baal was the son of El, symbolized as a bull known as the guardian of the storm, the controller of all economic prosperity and reproductivity. This form of worship, I would remind you, was debased and exceedingly immoral, yet local farmers believed that large crops were dependent upon your allegiance to Baal. And all the seductive rituals that came with that. It was a divided loyalty that angered God the most. Keep your finger here in place, but go back to Judges chapter 2. and verse 11, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Chapter 2, verse 11. The next verse is even more telling. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers. Here's the answer. You cannot serve two gods. It's not about, okay, one is not enough. I remember witnessing to a family that was involved in Hinduism. And I shared the gospel as clearly as I could. At the end of the time, they said, yes, we we want to receive your God. I said, great. But before we prayed, I looked up at their mantle above the fireplace. And I saw different little godlets and banners. I said, what is, before we pray, what does all that mean? 
And they said with a smile, those are the other gods we serve. We like your God. We want to add him to that. I said, wait, wait, wait a minute. No. He alone is God. Well, the children of Israel did evil. And they began to serve Balaam. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, followed other gods, the gods around about them, and bowed themselves to them. And it provoked the Lord to anger. Now back to chapter 6. It was a divided loyalty that brought upon them the anger of God and took from them the strength of his favor and power. Sinful behaviors always result in great fear. And you notice what happens, the result, verse 2, in the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because God allowed it. The children of Israel made them dens, which are on the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came in, so they were hiding. That's an obvious fear and the lack of discouragement is, is often connected to our disloyalty to God. It's only a natural consequence that when we begin to worship and bow down to false gods, even the gods that are close to us, the ones that we think as pleasurable and perhaps security, maybe you have a godlet of security in the backyard, maybe a godlet of safety, maybe you've got a little godlet here that protects you in in the area and it's, it's where your heart is, sports or whatever it is, there it is and God can see it and he sees the division of loyalty in your heart and he knows how often you worship and bow down to that one or that one, how often you check the stocks and how often you run here to see if maybe it's okay and your future is sewed up and, or you're having enough fun or you're protected from the enemy and you've left God out. So they had a divided loyalty. So, so when the enemy did come, where are they? They're hiding. Guilt does that. It did that in the inception of the garden. When they sinned, what happened? They hid. And so what would happen is the nomadic tribes would come around them. And they didn't want to tend the crops. They had no, no care for that. The Midianites simply wanted to come and enjoy the table, the harvest. And so every year, May, June, excuse me, April, May, June, they would come. And after all the hard work was done, the Midianites just came swooping in with their thousands, camels and donkeys and so forth, and their warriors, and they would simply snatch up everything that was there. The crop was harvested. They knew exactly when that would happen. Seven years. Well, it was simply tied, this devastation, impoverishment was tied to their sinfulness. Well, God has an answer. Just by way of wrapping up, God has an answer for our fear. In chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord sends a prophet. I don't know what you think about preachers who tell the truth, but praise God for them. This was before the season. We think of the uh, kind of the era of prophets beginning with Samuel, perhaps. Elijah, a little bit later and Elisha, and so forth. But God's always had His voice of truth. And if you have a friend in your life that tells you the truth, praise God for that. If your preacher does that, praise God for him. Even if it's hard, even if your toes hurt, thank the Lord for those voices of truth. Here comes the prophet, unnamed prophet, verse 8. He says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up. 
It's a history lesson he knew the people needed to be reminded, this do in remembrance of me. What kind of God, dear friend, do you serve? I delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians. I delivered you out of all that oppressed you. I drove out from before you and gave you this promised land. The very land you stand upon, dear friend, is given to you by God. He was the one that initiated the great deliverance, brought you to this large place, divided the land, gave you villages and vineyards that you didn't work for, plant or build. God did that. Before you pat yourself on the back, understand who it is that brought you to the place of privilege. Verse 10, And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. All you have to do is look in your rearview mirror and know, if you look far enough back down the trail of God's history at this people, that I have done great things for you. Instead of counting your bruises and hiding in these caves and dens and wondering who is out there big enough to overcome the Midianites, would you please look back in your history and see how great God has done for you, how great things God has done. God has an answer. He sent a problem, first of all, then He sent a prophet. He sent a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 11 and ensuing all the way through verse 14. It's an interesting exchange. Here comes the angel. He doesn't recognize Gideon is threshing his wheat or just removing the chaff, the hole from the grain, and he's hiding, and he's got this spirit in him that's kind of discouraged. And a stranger walks up to him. Obviously, he, he doesn't have a halo around his head because Gideon is not surprised by that, and they begin this dialogue. And God is so gracious to not only send a problem and a prophet, he sends himself. He comes to Gideon. Of all people, God does this on purpose. This humble man who is exercised in his soul. You see that as the angel says, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man. Of, who are you talking to, mighty man of valor? He says, You've got the, I'm just Gideon. I'm least of the least. I'm nobody. And, and, and why, if God is with us, if God is with us, why all this? Have you ever prayed that or ever said that to the Lord? If, if, if you're God, then why is all this happening? And so he looks at the man, Gideon. The Lord does this Christophany, pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord. We know that from verse 22 and how the Lord responds to this offering in his name. He doesn't bow or flee or condemn Gideon. He accepts this really this offering in his own name. It's an angel. This is the angel of the Lord. And he looks at Gideon, and I like this surprising response of the angel of the Lord Christ himself. And he says this, verse 14, after this kind of protest or complaint that we might think is a protest, where is God? Where's the miracles? The Lord looked at Gideon and said this, go in this thy might. And thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? Do you know that courage, I know it begins at home, and we're going to look at this just in a minute before we close, but God sees your heart, and he knows that his greatest work 
will go on in the hearts, in terms of courage, will go on the hearts of those most desperate for God to work. Are you just living in a culture that's really nothing more than a gutter? It's becoming that, isn't it? And just taking it? There is a spirit in Gideon's heart that says, Lord, where, where are the miracles? Are you just trying to get through life and hopefully the next generation will take? Here's Gideon. He says, Lord, we, we want you to work again. We want you to answer prayer again. We, we want deliverance again, like Moses and Joshua. And so he sends them promise, I will be with thee. I will be with thee. And, of course, there's that exchange where uh, the, the offering is given. But he ends this, and I, I really like this. He ends this um, time with this dear man who he commissions to do great things by saying this. And this was the point of the whole message. The biggest challenge starts at home. Verse 25, he says, I, I want you to do great things. I want you to be the deliverer. <clears throat> And, uh, and here's what he says, Then Gideon built an altar, the Lord is the God prescribed, and he called it Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is my peace. Today it's still there, and Ophrah of the Abizrites, and it came to pass that same night, the Lord returns to him, not, not, not as an afterthought, but he comes and says, Okay, are you ready? Here's what it takes to be a courageous champion. Take thy father's bullock, yes, you know the one, even the second bullock of seven years, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath. Go to your own backyard and cut down the grove that is by it. Don't do a hot air balloon ride over the sin that is closest to you. God, who will do a great miracle through Gideon, starts at home. And build an altar to the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place. Take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of grove of the grove which thou shalt cut down. Gideon, so afraid of his daddy and the response of those that in the community, the council, the politicians of the town, took ten men of his servants, did as the Lord said unto him. He did it at night because he feared his father's household. And then you know the exchange, right? I woke up in the morning and the idol is torn down. The Asherah pole is ground to dust. And the two bullocks are missing. And there's this great uproar. It tells you how in, in, embedded this love for idolatry was in their hearts. Who, who's taking away our pleasures? Who's taking away our, our, our sense of security? Isn't Baal the one that's causing our crops to grow? Who's doing this? And it's your son, sir. Well, bring him out and let's kill him. <laughs> How deep is your affinity for the things that are killing you? And one man says, no, let Baal contend for himself. Let Baal contend for himself. If Baal is such a great God, I think of Elijah on top of Mount. If Baal is such a great God, let him come down and light this fire. If Baal is such a great God, let him come and rebuild his own altar. But let's not pick on the guy that's brave enough to stand. 
May God give us the courage to start at home. Let's bow our heads together, shall we? Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.